For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 42 verses, Acts 2, the first 42 verses. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia, in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants <coughs> and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved 
Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not suffer, not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Thou sh sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. We read that far. And we consider this morning, verses 38 and 39. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, an amazing announcement is made here by the Apostle Paul in the Scriptures. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That amazing announcement is one that we know very well. It is quoted in our own form, especially the form for 
baptism. And we often consider this particular text with regard to baptism because it follows the command to baptize and it mentions that the promise of God here is extended to children. And so it is rightly used in our form and used as a ground for infant baptism. But what we often forget is that the apostle here is explaining Pentecost. This is a Pentecost sermon. And he is explaining the meaning of Pentecost. And what he has to say has to do with Pentecost. Specifically, his explanation is this, that the Holy Spirit was given on Pentecost. The evidence was that there were 120 people who were going about Jerusalem testifying what had happened that morning. They were gathered together, and then they heard something. They heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and then they saw something. They saw cloven tongues as of fire upon the heads of each one of them. And then they began to speak. And many of them did not speak in their native tongues, but in a tongue they did not know, a foreign tongue. And they went about speaking about these things that had happened. And foreigners in the city, all over the city, foreigners who had been gathered there from all over to celebrate Pentecost, heard these people from Galilee, speaking in their own language. And in response to this amazing testimony and this amazing thing that they heard, they asked the question, what's going on here? What's the meaning of all this? And Peter begins to preach. He begins to preach And notice, he preaches the gospel to them. He preaches Jesus Christ to them. That's his sermon. His sermon begins with the announcement that this testimony was, first of all, something that was fulfilled or fulfillment of the prophet Joel. What ye hear, he says, was prophesied. It prophesied in Joel that God would pour out His Spirit so that men and women and even children would speak the wonderful works of God. And then he transitions to speaking about Jesus Christ. That's the theme of his sermon, Jesus of Nazareth. He explains who He was. He explains the evidence of who He was, that indeed He was God's Christ, but that they, His audience, had killed this Christ, killed this Jesus wickedly, even though it was done by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And this, too, was according to the prophets, was according to the Scriptures, And he shows that by quoting the prophet David from the Psalms. That all along God had prophesied that not only would the Christ be killed, but he would be raised up. 
and he would be ascended into heaven, God would take him to heaven and seat him on his own right hand and there impart to him the Holy Spirit. And that now what they were witnessing was the pouring out of that Spirit, the gift of that Spirit from the ascended and risen Christ. But there's more. Importantly, the words that we consider this morning are also in response to a second question. The effect of this sermon, the effect of this preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit is that many were pricked in their heart and they ask this question, men and brethren, what must we do? And the words of our text are a direct response to that. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the Holy Ghost. And then he gives this wonderful announcement as the explanation. For, for the promise is unto you. Consider with me this morning the Pentecost promise. The Pentecost promise, and we consider the content, the object, and then the blessing. On Pentecost, some 3,000 men, women, and children repented, were baptized, and received the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost. And the apostle explains why that was. He explains immediately afterwards why this happened, why it could happen and why it did happen. And his explanation is, for the promise is unto you. Now, this promise was God's promise. It was not the promise of the apostle Peter. It was not the promise of some individual person. It shouldn't even be viewed as some promise that was found in Scripture. But it was God's promise. The promise of God is His solemn, unchangeable, and certain word that He will do good to someone in the future. That's God's promise. God's promise is his certain, unchangeable, and faithful word that he will do good to someone in the future. And such is this promise that it is a promise of good, such good, that if one has this good, he has no need for anything else. There is no other good. All the good, all that can be called good, is in that promise. It is what God promises. When someone has that promise, there is no evil there is no bad 
that they are delivered from, and there is no good that they are denied or kept from. Now this promise of God is not called a promise or even promises, but the promise, for the promise is unto you. That's significant because there are indeed many promises that God makes. There are many words of God that contain promises. So we speak of and we read of that word in Scripture in the plural many, many times. The Bible speaks of in First Peter 1 verse 4 that given to us are exceeding great and precious promises. We know that God made a promise to Abraham, but the Bible speaks of promises being made to Abraham. So there are many promises, and they are given to many different people, and even many to a same person. We read in Romans 9 verse 4 that promises were given to Israel. In Romans 15, we read that Jesus came to confirm many promises given to the people of God, and yet we read here of only one, the promise. That teaches something significant. That all of these promises, no matter when they are given, no matter to whom they are given, are all essentially one promise. There may be specifics to a particular promise that God gives about this or that good, but essentially it's all one promise of all one good, one thing, one promise of one thing that is good, that encompasses all these other promises and all these other good things. Notice also about the promise, this promise that God makes. It's one that God gives personally. Oh yes, Peter speaks these words to an audience. He even uses the plural, you. But the very fact that he is referring to the many promises of God given throughout history as one promise... And the result of the giving of this promise is that individuals do something and are filled with something and given some good indicates that this is a promise that God makes to individuals. It is a personal promise of personal good. It is not simply a promise of God to show good to an entire nation or an entire people or an entire church or an entire family. It is a promise of good to do an individual good. This is a promise that was given to Abraham in the garden, or Adam in the garden. It was given to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. It was given to Isaac in Canaan, to Jacob and Judah in Egypt. It was given to David in Jerusalem. Even now, on this Pentecost day in Jerusalem, this promise was given to Peter and to the individual disciples, even as it was given individually to those who were baptized individually. This promise, I said, is solemn and certain and sure. That is, unchangeable and irrevocable. That's not mentioned here, 
but it is evident that that is the case with this particular promise. This is worth noting because we know about promises. We make promises. We receive promises. We may promise good, even great good. We may receive promises of good and great good, even great inheritances that we receive or we give. But this promise is unlike all of those promises. We may have good intentions. We may speak them very solemnly. We may swear oaths, sign our name on the dotted line. But our promises are not like God's promise. Why is that? The answer is exactly because it's God's promise and therefore it reflects the character of God. This is a promise of God's word. God is truth and so he speaks only the truth. God is unchanging so his promise does not change. God is absolutely sovereign so there is nothing There is no one and nothing that can keep him from carrying out his promise. He's the independent one, absolutely free. And so he's not dependent upon anyone or anything to carry out his promises. His promise never fails, never ends, never goes away. It's never revoked. It never changes. Besides that, God's promise has that character, namely that it's solemn, unchanging, and certain because of the content of that promise. The content of that promise is good. And that good is God's good. That it is, it is everlasting good. It is unending good. It is unchanging good. It is from God who is the highest good himself. And therefore, it is unending and everlasting. It's good that takes away evil. It's good that takes away the bad. It's good that's given not for a time or only temporarily, only to then again receive evil and bad, but it's as good as God is eternally good. Also, This promise is solemn and certain and sure and unchanging because God gives that promise with an oath. He seals His promise with a promise. He makes a vow. He swears an oath when He gives that. In fact, that's even mentioned in the text itself. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God hath sworn an oath to him. God made a promise and God swore an oath to him with that promise. We read of that also in Hebrews 6 verse 17. Wherefore God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. Notice he had given them a promise so that they were heirs of the promise. To confirm the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath. And he swears in that oath by nothing greater, namely by himself. So true is this, that through history, both in Scripture and in the creeds, to receive the promise 
is as certain as sure as one has the thing itself. On the one hand, the Scriptures make clear that a promise is of good in the future, that one has the promise, and yet there's good to come in the future. One may have good, one may have parts of that promise, aspects of that promise, and it's good, and they have all good, but there's still more to come, always. And yet, at the same time, at the same time, the Scriptures make clear that exactly because this is God's promise, God's Word, God's surety to have it is as if to have the thing itself. Why did this or that good come upon someone? Or why did they even act as if they had it already when in fact they didn't? What explains Abraham's behavior to go to Canaan Received a promise that he would receive the land of Canaan and never received any part of Canaan at all except a grave that he bought. And the answer is because he had the promise. And that promise was far greater and more extensive than Adam Abraham even realized at first. Now, that promise has content. And here, too, we ought to examine it. It's the promise, and therefore the content must be more vast and rich than we can possibly imagine. If it's the promise, then the content is the good that is promised. The good. Just think about that for a second. First of all, consider this, that this promise, this one promise, the promise, is the fulfillment of every single promise made in the Scriptures. The promise that we hear and read of in Genesis 3.15 called the mother promise. It includes that. It includes everything in Scripture called the promise, the covenant promises, promises pertaining to salvation. But much, much more than that, much more than we realize. In fact, I maintain that it includes the very promise that we call the law of God, which when this promise is fulfilled, completely changes one's understanding of the thou shalt's. They may be taken as promises of the great good that God gives unto us, so that we shall indeed do what God commands us to do. That's why even the Word of God in Psalm 119 and what we sang called the Word of God the promise. Think of how vast and wide is this promise. It includes every good. Have an earthly good? It's in that promise. It includes every earthly good. It includes every spiritual good. It includes every good for your body, every good for your soul. It includes every good pertaining to your life on earth as well as your life in heaven. It includes good that you receive before you were even born. It includes good that's coming after your death. It includes good that you have right now and good to be received after now. It includes not only the good, but the many, many means that God uses to give the good. We understand that too. If you as a father promise to your son a bike, 
The promise includes not simply the bike itself, but everything the Father does to provide the bike, that the Father will go out and work to earn some money, that He will take that money and save it, and then He will go to the store and buy the bike, and then He will bring the bike to the Son. It includes even Son, not only do you have a bike, but I'll teach you how to ride the bike. So also with God, it includes not only the good, but all the means by which God provides the good, which may themselves be considered part of the good. It includes not only the good itself, but the enjoyment of the good. There's the good thing itself, and then there's enjoying it. Being thankful for it, that included also in the promise. It's a good that even turns evil into good. It's a good such that it takes the bad and makes it good. It's a good that takes death and turns it into life takes blindness and turns it into sight, takes life in a grave and turns it into life everlasting. Think about that. This is so good. It is so rich and so vast that one who has this promise needs and wants nothing else. It's a good such that one may lack things that one thinks are good, may lack a certain home, may lack a certain even form of good, but has a better good in another form, realizes that this lack that I have is itself good. It's a good such that even if one is dying, One says, if they have the promise, I have good. It's a promise whose good even creates the good of hope and patience in life and in death. It's a good such that if one has even a single good of that promise, one has certain hope and patience that all the rest will follow. Now what is that good? What is the content of that promise? Now one should expect that it's one single thing. Oh, there may be many forms. There may be many aspects to this good. But essentially, if there's one promise, the promise, then there should be one good, one thing that is promised by God. What is it? And the answer is, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. That's the one great promise of God in all of Scripture. The one great promise promised in every promise. That everything God has promised. It doesn't matter its form. It doesn't matter how it's received or when it's received. It all is essentially one gift, the Holy Spirit. That should be evident from the passage itself. You see, the apostle is not only answering the questions of those in the audience about what we must do, but he's explaining Pentecost. These words come in response to questions about what is this? What is this that's going on in this day? He's explaining the testimony of the signs by the 120 disciples. And the answer is, They've received the Holy Ghost that was promised. 
More specifically, he's explaining why it is that when they repent and baptize, they receive something. They receive the forgiveness of sins. They receive redemption and they receive the Holy Ghost. Why is that? And the answer is because of the promise. Something was promised to you. And that one great promise is the Holy Spirit. That's the specific thing he's answering. You will receive the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you. And that's precisely why in verse 33, the Spirit is called what He is called. The promise of the Holy Ghost. That promise is the Holy Ghost. He is the content. He is that one great good That's significant all by itself. Because that means this is a promise to be given and a promise to receive and a promise to have God Himself. This is a promise of God. It's a promise of God, not only in the sense that it comes from God, but it's a promise to give God Himself to yourself as your own God. This is the fulfillment of the covenant promise I will be a God unto you and to your seed after thee. I will be your God. How does God fulfill that promise? And the answer is by the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the promise. It's the promise of the covenant. It's the promise of salvation. It's the promise that God will be our God for the Holy Spirit is God. He is the individual, personal Spirit of God. That means when this promise is given, when it is fulfilled, one has God Himself living in Himself. It is to have God living in you. It is to have God living with you. It is to have God now. It is to have God forever. It is to have God before you're born. It is to have God after you die. And it is to have God not simply in you and with you, but for you. It is to have God on your side. It is to have God as your ally, as your friend, as your fellow. It is to have God as your Lord and your Savior. It is to have God for you in life and in death. To have God as your friend and advocate, as your benefactor and defender. It is to have God as your life and salvation. It is the promise of every virtue and perfection and blessedness of God. And to have that now, of course, as a creature. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is life. He is the life of God. He is the love of God. He is the mercy and grace of God. He is the power of God. He is the righteousness and holiness of God. It is therefore not only just have God, or God in the abstract, or God in some way, but it is to have the very perfections and virtues of God for oneself. And this is partly why the gift is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is amazing. We must give due honor and glory to the Spirit. In the same way we give due honor and glory to Jesus Christ. One who honors Jesus Christ without honoring the Spirit does not honor Jesus Christ. And vice versa, we might add. The Holy Spirit here comes to the foreground exactly because 
of the great difference between you and me and God. Ask the question, how? How can I have God living in me? How can I be incorporated into God? How can I be one with God? How can I have God walking with me? How can I have God as my friend and my advocate? How how can I receive indeed the eternal life and omnipotent power of God as a tiny, insignificant, finite creature and, oh, worse, a sinner who is God's enemy, who by nature hates God, who doesn't deserve a single thing from God but only hell and death and destruction? And the answer is, of course, those sins have to be dealt with, have to be removed. But don't forget also, something amazing has to happen. And the Spirit is the explanation. The Spirit, being the personal Spirit of God, has the amazing ability, which you see even in Christ Himself, of joining very dissimilar natures and things. If one wants to understand the Spirit, one really cannot do that through Jesus Christ. We're going to see that also. But if you want to know the amazing, amazing thing about the Spirit, look at Christ. Wherein one person, the eternal, everlasting Son of God, are two natures, perfectly, eternally, and wonderfully joined together. And yet, so that God remains God, and the human remains human. And you'll get a sense of why this gift must be the Spirit Himself. But where's Christ in all this? Ah, there is a connection, of course. Because the Apostle makes that connection. The Apostle begins by speaking about the Spirit, but then he begins to speak about Jesus of Nazareth. And the connection is evident when he even speaks about Jesus of Nazareth. Not only is the prophesying the fulfillment of God's promise to pour out the Spirit, but you'll notice that Jesus is sustained by the Spirit. That Jesus is raised from the dead by the Spirit. And Jesus is given that Spirit as His own personal Spirit when He ascends. It's why He ascends. Something even amazing about that. That means that when one receives the Spirit, one receives Jesus Christ. And the promise of the Spirit is also, and at the same time, a promise of Jesus Christ. You see, it's impossible to receive the Spirit without also receiving Jesus Christ, because it is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It is the personal spirit of Jesus Christ that should be evident throughout this passage. So that means a whole lot more, especially when we look at it and we look at the details of this good. What is this great good? It is to receive salvation. It is to receive eternal life. It is to receive the benefit of every aspect of salvation that are all found in Jesus Christ. It is to be united to God through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. 
When one receives the gift of the Holy Spirit, one receives personal salvation in Jesus Christ as one's own personal possession to enjoy, to live out of. You see, it's everything. Everything is included in that promise. Everything good. Everything pertaining to that good. It's the promise of incorporation into Christ. It's the promise to be one with Christ. To live in Him and out of Him. It's the promise to receive redemption and forgiveness of sins. That should be evident and that the Apostle is explaining that. When he says for, he's responding to why they receive the remission of sins. They receive the remission of sins and the Holy Ghost. Why? For the promise. That is, that remission of sins is included in the promise. The forgiveness of sins. And don't forget, included in that promise, therefore, is everything connected with that. The sending of Christ. The death of Christ. The shedding of His blood on the cross. The accursed death. All the events of human history that bring that about. His connection to David and Abraham and all of it. It's all included in that promise. And then, that forgiveness. And don't forget, everything means connected to it not just jesus himself and the giving of but when god actually grants that forgiveness when god says to you i forgive you and you hear that that's part of the promise how can one receive that promise except by faith and how can one be incorporated and have god as his god and even be in god without faith it's impossible Faith is the bond by which we are connected to Christ and believe in Him. It's included in the promise. Even though the answer to the question of what must we do is repent and be baptized, believe, that's included in the promise. It's part of the promise. It's the good of the promise. That's why baptism which is a sign of the washing away of sins and incorporation into Christ, read the baptism form, is so closely connected to this promise. And repentance. It's a promise of holiness. That's brought out by the very signs. The signs of Pentecost, what were they? The sound of a mighty rushing wind. That's a sign of the power of the Holy Spirit. It includes, that's not the Holy Spirit Himself, but the mighty, irresistible power by which God accomplishes this. All the good and the means to impart the good. But there was another one. Cloven tongues of fire. What's a picture of? Fire is a picture of holiness. Included in this promise, this promise of the Holy Spirit, is the promise of sanctification. To do whatever God calls us to do. It's the promise that when God calls you to do something, you will do it doesn't matter whether it's faith and repentance or obedience and prayer. It's included in the promise. It's part of the promise for you and for your children. It's even the promise of whatever we speak and what we say. Again, simply look at Pentecost and what happened. The third sign, they spoke. And they spoke in everyone's tongue. Why in everyone's tongue? Because God was using their speaking, their preaching as a means to impart this good, to impart this promise to others. And they couldn't understand it if it wasn't spoken in their tongue. So he gives the speakers that ability. They themselves heard this promise. They themselves received this promise through hearing and many other ways. 
and then they themselves went out and spoke. All part of the great promise. Is there anything good that you have received? Then it's a part of this promise. And one can say, if you have received the Holy Spirit, then you have received every good in that Spirit, including the means by which you receive Him. Don't forget that. If God promises the gift, He's promising everything connected with the giving of that gift, as well as the enjoyment of that gift. Now, the promise is unto you. For it is unto you. Notice that word, unto. That's an important word when we consider, well, who receives this promise? Who's the object of this promise? And we have to be careful here because one can speak of one receiving that promise through their ears or through their eyes. It is possible to speak that way. In fact, many, many, many in Jerusalem heard the promise. They heard it spoken. They heard it spoken in their own language. They heard it from these individuals. All throughout history, there have been many who heard the promise with their ears. They received the promise in various means. When they were reading the Scriptures, they could read that promise. They received it in some outward sense, we may say. But was the promise unto them? Was God making a promise to them? That's an important question to ask. The answer to that question is no. That promise, you see, was grace. God gave that promise graciously. That should be evident even from the event itself when you simply look at who this promise is for and who the apostle is speaking to, who it is that is baptized and received the Spirit. In the first place, they were Jews whose hands were full of the blood of killing God's Christ. In fact, that's why their hearts are pricked and they cry out, what must be due? They knew they were guilty of the greatest sin ever committed, namely the crucifixion of God's only begotten Son in Christ. The promise was unto them. There were not only Jews that this promise was given to, but Gentiles, Greeks, because it's a promise unto you and to those who are afar off. Unto those that are far off, that is Gentiles. Gentiles even now living in idolatry and in adultery. The two great sins of the Gentiles. Oh, there's more that shows this is a great gracious promise. Not only the sinfulness, the undeservedness of those who receive this promise, but it's given to children. It's a promise made to believers and their seed. Even infant children now. Not just children who can understand words, but Children not yet born, children who are just infants. So that this is indeed a ground to baptize such infants. But the question is, was this promise of God unto all those Jews that Peter was speaking to? Was this promise unto all the Gentiles? Even more importantly, is this promise unto 
every single child of those to whom this promise is actually unto, that is, believers? And the answer is and must be no. And that's exactly why that word unto is used. On the one hand, this promise of God has always been preached. It has been presented. It has been spoken universally. Many, many have heard it. By the time Jesus returns, all will have heard it. But not all those who hear it receive this promise, nor is the promise unto them or for them. That should be evident even here. If you consider simply what the promise is and what it must contain and what he's talking about, if indeed that promise is made head for head to everyone in his audience, then that's no promise at all. Then that promise is not certain. It is not sure. It does not include even someone receiving the promise, whether it be by faith or however it's received doesn't really matter how it's received. It can't include that because if God promised it, then it's going to happen. It's going to be there. This promise is for those, indeed, who repented. This promise is unto those who were baptized. This promise is unto those who actually received the Holy Spirit. We may call them God's elect. That certainly is true. But the promise is also given to those who believe and only to those who believe, to those who repent and only those who repent, to those who live unto God in all good works. Why? Because that's the promise. Those who do not do that have not received the promise. The promise is not unto them. That's an amazing, an amazing and humbling thing. And it must be that way because in the first place, then grace wouldn't be grace. This would not be a gracious promise. It would be a promise dependent on those who believe or repent or do anything. And grace rules out that. If this is a promise that God makes to everyone head for head, including those who will never believe or repent or any such thing who are not saved then in the first place that means that this promise itself does not grant what God actually promises. It means it's not actually granted in grace or because of grace or out of grace. It's granted because you've done something. It's granted not in grace undeserved favor, but because you've deserved it and earned it and made yourself worthy of it. And the Bible rejects that. But not only that, And even more importantly, is of what that suggests about God. God, then, is not God. God doesn't keep his word. God doesn't keep his promises. God changes his mind. God is not independent and sovereign, but rather dependent. And you are sovereign. That's who receives this promise. And don't forget, that's evident too. Remember what the Apostle is explaining. What he's saying here is not repent and be baptized because then you will receive the promise. Now at 
superficial glance, you may read it that way, because certainly it's true in a very real sense that he says, repent and be baptized, and you will receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is this. Repent and be baptized, and in the way of repentance and baptism, you will be incorporated into Jesus Christ, receive the forgiveness of sins in him and the Holy Ghost. And then he says, for. Now you understand that for is explaining not simply why they must repent and baptize, but it's explaining why they will do it. It's explaining why, why that is so important. Because it's all part of the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing thing here. So we can look at the blessing, and we will be brief, because it should be obvious that to receive the promise is to receive the content, and to receive the content is to be blessed with the content. And that's the blessedness of it. And you see it even in an amazing way here in this passage. On the one hand, you can say that one who doesn't show the evidence, hasn't received the promise, hasn't received the reality or the content. That's important. But when one has, it should be evident, and it should be evident in the very blessings themselves. Let's just take a look at the passage very carefully. Those who were gathered into the church, some 3,000, when did they receive the Holy Ghost? When did they receive the promise? Well, you could answer that various ways, but let's simply say that they received the promise in the very preaching itself. Many of them had received it earlier, heard it earlier, read it earlier. But that promise included the very preaching that was coming to them. Don't forget, they had just crucified Christ, and then they're going to be received into Christ. So when did they receive that promise? Well, they heard the preaching. That was part of the promise. Part of the receiving of the promise. And then what happened? Their hearts were pricked. Well, how'd that happen? Who worked that? Why were their hearts pricked? And, and not the thousands and thousands of others whose hearts weren't pricked. Who said, this is just a bunch of drunks talking. Answer, Holy Spirit was at work. The explanation is, for the promise is unto you and to your children. And even to all those that are far off. That's why you're hearing this word in your own tongue. And that's why there's something in your heart that's just pricking. And though when they ask that question, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? Why that? Why that question? Because the promise is unto you and to your children. Why is the answer, repent and be baptized? And the, name of, and the answer is, again, the same thing. Why? Because those are all the blessings of that great promise. And so when they are indeed baptized, when they do indeed repent, when they are in fact incorporated into Jesus Christ through faith, when they do receive the forgiveness of sins, he may call that receiving the Holy Spirit, consciously, understandingly. But the explanation for it all is long before that was a promise. A promise to save, to incorporate, to work repentance, faith, and salvation.
and certain individuals so that they were gathered there. And even though by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, they crucified Christ, everything else, every good. That, beloved, is why we're here today. What we celebrate is that the promise is unto us and to our children by God's grace and that we can receive that promise and have received that promise and received many forms of that promise and much good of that promise we can even expect more more good and more good and more good but fundamentally God has given us his promise amen let us pray our Father which art in heaven O Lord we thank thee for thy word and the great gift of Pentecost the great Pentecost promise. May we give unto Thee, O Lord, all praise, all honor, and all glory. For Thou hast done these things. Thou hast given them. Thou dost work them. Thou dost provide. And give us, O Lord, faith to believe, to trust, to hope in the certainty, the solemnity, and the unchangeable character of Thy promise. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.